0: Welcome to Priority Message Series 1. This podcast is brought to you by the Fire and Rescue Services Association, a trade union within the Fire and Rescue Service that is independent and member-led. You can find out more about FRSA by visiting frsa.org.uk.
1: And welcome to the second edition of Priority Message, the brand new podcast from the FRSA. And today we are recording a special pod to mark International Women's Day. So my revolutionary idea for this was to have more women than men just talking about fire service issues not necessarily talking about being women, which, which we are, but just talking about some really important fire service issues. So I'm delighted to welcome to Priority Message today Dawn Whitaker, who is the Chief Fire Officer and Chief Exec for East Sussex Fire and Rescue Service. Dawn, thank you so much for giving up your time to come speak to us today.
2: Yeah, i most welcome.
1: Uh, also Tristan Ashby is with us he's of course our own chief exec and I'm Becky Barr I'm a whole time firefighter uh, for uh, for Lancashire Fire and Rescue Service um so Don, let's get straight into it you have had a really interesting and quite unusual career path to get to the uh the high rank where you are now just tell us a little bit about your background so your background isn't actually your original background isn't actually in the fire service is it
2: no um So I have worked in all three sectors, uh, private, public, and the voluntary sector. Um, And after leaving uni, uh, my career started with John Lewis's, um, John Lewis's Partnerships. I went in as a graduate uh, on their graduate training um, scheme, worked with them for about 14 years, did various stores around the UK, and um, ended up as a department head uh, for them, um, and managing a, a collection uh, of different projects as well. And from there, I I had a bit of personal information, but I had my son very late in life and um, wanted a little bit of work-life balance. This sounds bizarre now when I say it, but uh, at the time, I was working every Saturday and one Sunday in three, because um, it's retail. And I thought, now nah, I could do with a bit more a bit more family time. Um, went to work for a local authority, went to work for Northamptonshire County Council, um, and I went into their planning and performance sort of area um, and put together their program management office, which I headed up after a while. Um, then I was asked to go on to Scotland into the fire service to help Northamptonshire Fire with the uh, adoption of CPA, which was a corporate performance assessment, the Audit Commission one, before the one we've got now. And um, so I happily went over, absolutely loved it. It was sort of far more dynamic um, than working for the county council and thought, oh, this is just great. I'd like to stay. (laughs) Um, But after a little wee while, it was obvious that, you know, if you're going to work in fire, you need... To, to have the full sort of skill set. Um, so the chief officer at the time, a chap called David Archer, said, well, you know, if you're going to stay, you're going to have to think about working those grum- grumpy hours again. Um, and uh, and I, I can't afford, you know, professional managers at your level unless you can do the whole job. So after a bit of head scratching, I decided to give it a go. So I started Um, on the direct entry program. Um, And uh, that was an area manager rank. I came in area manager and uh, I'd been managing sort of the performance management for fire trading standards, community safety, the coroner, believe it or not, um, and a few other areas. Uh, And so I went back to basics. I did uh, went on with a a retained on call crew actually did my uh, initial training and
1: you went to do your your, your firefighter training. Yes, yeah, there so, so was an to assessment to see if, um, you know, it was going to be
2: for me. Uh, obviously, I wasn't going to be a firefighter, um, but for me, it was quite important to understand the job and understand what people were going through. So what's all this wearing BA stuff and, you know, rolling up hose and you know, all that sort of stuff. So I got put through yeah, I think my uh, own training team took great delight in a bit of boosting <laughs> around the drill
1: yard. Um, your body rolls under drop garage doors and all sorts. Yeah, um, probably not not particularly part of the training program except the dawn. and no, Yeah, actually I was
2: the last one on the drill ground with any air left in my cylinder. And uh, they kept on going, another circuit, Whitaker. another circuit. <laughs> I quickly realized everybody else had found out where their quick release demand valve was. Um, but I kept on going until I thought, right, I've had enough now. So Marcus Conley, who was a station manager, instructor, I got to the f- final stop point and I'd been going – I think I'd done three circuits more than anybody else. Yeah, yeah, and I'd right. still sort of got there. And um, I looked him square in the eyes and I went, give me your name, rank, and serial number. <laughs> and he went, you can stand there now, Dawn. <laughs> uh, a, it was a bit of a joke, but, but obviously – you know, it it gave me an insight, and um, and although I was never going to be a firefighter, I'm not. I've never been a competent firefighter. I've never ridden, ridden on a fire engine. I wanted to really understand and get to grips about what the role was going to be like. Obviously, I had a fair idea because my partner uh, was in the service. Um, but um, yeah, that's that's how it all
1: started. You kind of you, and, kind of came, you came around backwards in a way, didn't you? Exactly. It kept the other way up and in the process did a phenomenally good job at rising through the ranks but a crushingly awful job at achieving those weekends off
2: I admit that was a total failure <laughs> in
1: fact, as I look back now
2: and um, I've remarried and what I've acquired a larger family and one of the regrets I have is how much time I didn't spend with them but um, I'd say now uh, as we do a bit of life reflection i'm at that stage in my life where i can do this and they're all grown up the youngest one's 23 um and they've all said that they got their work ethic from us um yeah. that commitment to work that commitment to the community as well so and um, one of them's a uh, paramedic one's in the military um one's a lawyer so do you know what we didn't do too bad did we so absolutely I'll, even though I, I did
1: miss out on quite a lot of school plays but um yeah so my what? routine was not traditional, you're right. Not traditional at all, no. And what do you think, just briefly, before we come back to that? What do you think the fire service gave you? What what was it about the fire service that 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 really sparked that passion for you that you didn't get from John Lewis?
2: So there were some similar things actually. Um, in that you know there was that sense of pride in helping somebody to get something that they needed. Um, but for me, it was the real community thing. I I guess I didn't get that, um, core value ticked, um, with, with retail, which is why I probably did a lot of voluntary work alongside my job. Then, um, we did work with the homeless. I did work with uh, a few charities, which you'll know about because they're water-based charities. Royal Life Saving Society, I was heavily involved in, I was involved in, uh, I chaired, some board of Trustees for our local NVB, the Voluntary Bureau, did volunteer car schemes and stuff like that. Um, and I think that was the gap in my professional life. So it it all sort of seemed to come together when I worked in fire because there was that opportunity to make a difference, um, that opportunity to help people. Um, and I just loved the can-do attitude, actually, that real desire to make things better that, that really fitted for me
1: yeah and I think for a lot of firefighters certainly for me and other firefighters that I know well enough to know their motivations I think that core of public service is common to a lot of firefighters as it as it should be because we are we are public servants aren't we how does your experience then coming into the fire service from that direction um, influence how you feel about direct entry in general, you know, nationally for fire and rescue services? Because it's a bit of a thorny issue for some people, isn't it? Yeah,
2: it is. And and look, I guess I get I get it. Um, but for me, it's not about seeing it as the route. It's about seeing it as a route. I think generally in the sector, we haven't that been that great at change and we haven't necessarily been that great at leadership and development, if if I'm honest. So, yeah, you know, I sit on the leadership board and FCC, and we've been trying to create different pathways and different products um, to not only sort of make it a bit more rapid for some people that have got real talent that, that are existing and employed within the sector, but also opening up and broadening the talent pool. Because, you know, I, I was chatting to somebody on LinkedIn the other day about it who was probably in the anti-camp and um and i kind of tried to use the example of if you get somebody um who has been through i don't know training in another field military retail whatever else and and they might be reasonably good at some of the leadership and the people management and commercial management and procurement and all that sort of stuff um but they fancy a career change career pathway are they really going to go back if they're on like 35 40 grand and say oh I know what I'll do i will going to be a firefighter well um, they,
1: they might because I was well, 41 I was 41 when I came to the fire service and t- did a complete career change yeah. and um was literally twice as old as the youngest people in my recruit
2: schools. <laughs> yeah but I've, I've seen your triathlon um, <laughs> well, record, but, but, you know, what, what I would say it's is... It's not straightforward, I guess, pathways, I'm saying. Yeah, it's not straightforward. Different pathways will encourage a wider group of people. So I think one of the things we've suffered from is just a bit of funnel syndrome, only having one route. Um, so creation of different pathways opens up some differences of experience, attitude, I guess, um, and... You know, I I know some really great people out there that I've worked with historically um, who are professionals in their own field who wouldn't come back and be a firefighter. But actually, they could add value to the sector, um, even even in the operational command role. Um, One of the best um, incident commanders I think I've worked with in my 19 years this year, 19 years, is was a chap called um, Richard Hewitt. You might remember him, Tristian. He, he worked at Suffolk. Um, he was the dad.
0: Name rings a bell.
2: Yeah. And Richard was um, an ex, his ex-military, his background was military. Um, and he, I think he was major, um, served in Northern Ireland, all sorts. Um, he was one of the calmest, methodical um, guys I've ever worked with and probably one of the best on the incident ground in terms of incident command um that that i've worked with so he was a direct entry um doesn't mean that it's only the route and we've got some fantastic people in the sector who've come up you know through those ranks but you know if you want to broaden your talent pool you if you carry on doing it the way you've always done it you don't change that so it and the numbers are going to be small because the vast majority are still going to be intern, internal talent. But we need to improve the opportunity for them as well. You know, if, I, if I'm looking at somebody moving up through the ranks, I need them to have commercial savvy, you know, political acuity, um, financial acumen. Um, we need to give that to our people because being a good firefighter will not make you a great area manager because it's that much of the job you know the incident command is an element of the job but not the hugest part of it so we need to give other people um give people the tools in their toolkit
1: yeah i think it's also um for me it's and i would i do personally support direct entry even though i've done the whole thing of going you know starting again from the beginning it's another pillar of diversity isn't it And, and true diversity not just sort of deciding that we need to recruit certain um certain groups but true sort of diversity of people and skills um and i think that direct, direct entry is one way of doing that i know this brings us neatly onto professionalism of the fire and rescue services which i know is one of your uh, passions as well and um, how do you see as the fire service evolves how do you see professionalism coming to the fore in the next few years
2: so you know, I, I've, I've been around long enough to have seen that journey um, through IPDS, um, IRS and all of the things that came into being. Um, for me, you know, understanding that to be professional, you need to keep some of the old stuff. You absolutely do. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but you need to be fit for your current challenges. So greater, you know, understanding, greater uh, analytical ability, um, emotional intelligence is critical. I think, you know, we've, we've faced a lot, haven't we, in the last four years? Um, one minute it's COVID and then potential strike action and, you know, cost of living crisis. Actually being able to be equipped um, to deal with all of that um, and to forge a way through and a direction through that is really important. And our staff deserve that as well. They deserve leaders that can do that stuff and not just, you know, move from crisis to crisis that's you know often I know um my own staff will say to me you know we need we need clarity you know we need that inspirational piece around the direction where we're going and and actually for me that's not just about the person who's at the helm having that that's equipping the whole organization because if you do that and you've got leaders at every level you are going to get a better you're going to get a better service out of it Um, And, you know, there are things going on at the moment. You'll both be acutely aware of them, whether they're about, you know, what is the standard we should um, aim for? What's the culture um, that the sector needs going forward? All of those things rise from, you know, a clarity of professionalism. We are public servants. You know, we're not here, um, you know, in terms of self-satisfying our own career progression or you're know, just about being a good employer it's broader than that for us we need to actually make sure we're fit for purpose to solve issues that are emerging in the community climate change that sort of thing and equipped and ready um, for it so your know, professionalism for me covers that breadth um, of, of being prepared in the truest sense and not just in the emergency
1: sense and how you, I'm going, to, come to, I'm going to, come to defer to Tristan on some of this, but if I can just raise this as an issue, you talked about the clarity of mission and everyone needing to know where we stand and what we do. How far do you think uh, fire services uh, in interaction with central government are going towards being really clear about what the role of fire services and firefighters is? Because the risk changing isn't it risks in the community are changing and we need to know where we sit in that so I think when you talk I mean and and I've worked you know in central government so
2: I understand from if you like both sides of the fence as it were the challenges to meet the political need uh, and also the professional and organizational need it's really critical that we're able to have people um, explaining to uh, government, not just government ministers, actually, but more actually the civil servants, the things that are critically changing and what's needed to be put in place to shift that. And some of the discussions we've had at NFCC about fit for the future, um, making sure some of those professional things that we've been talking about in the last few minutes are in place. I don't think... Um, we've quite landed all of those um, with central government at the moment. And th- and that's because FAR is just that big on their agenda. Um, when you think about what's been happening with immigration, um, with cost of living, with COVID, of course, health and immigration services and you know other issues have been higher up the political agenda. But we need a clarity of voice um, into, uh, I guess, you know, those departments to be able to say this is going to be critically important the the thing is that they will have their um the, their issues of the moment and it's been consistent with that need for balanced strategy so it's it's not just about response and the correct response post-Grenfield Tower, all the you know business safety, its elements, what we're doing with prevention as well, and conveying and demonstrating and articulating these issues in a way which are really clear. Um and, and not about you know brow beating or chest beating we, we yeah you know, we need more money. Uh, we need this, we need that. It's actually about the community needs are this and this is how we feel you know, we can contribute to that, or this is our place in delivering that community need, which I think is we're getting better at, um, but I think it's taken some energy and some time. And of course, the other thing, and let's just be honest about it, you know, the volume of change in the government in this last two years has made that incredibly challenging.
0: That, that was one of the things that I was going to come in on because it's extremely frustrating from our point of view, the amount of different ministers that we end up meeting. I probably meet a minister once, maximum of twice before they change. Um, when I regularly meet them with the Home Office, it's never with the same civil servants, never. That that consistently changes. And I was just making some notes while you were talking there the one thing that's consistent about the fire service is the inconsistency things are changing all the time whether it be from the very top within the government departments all the way through to to station managers mm. managers and i'd like your view on this normally are probably in that particular post where they're responsible for three four on-call stations as an example for about six months it, it's never enough time for a relationship to build and to be able to implement whatever it is that that person believes needs to be implemented. And I think that that is that is a problem all the way from the top, all the way down to the bottom. And if you agree with that, how do we change that?
2: Okay, so uh, I'm not going to say that I agree or disagree. I'm just going to give you a different lens, okay? Because having worked in the commercial field, public private and voluntary sector i would say the only consistent i've seen is is change it, it changes everywhere and actually if you work with volunteers even faster because you don't know that the people you've got on a volunteer project today are going to be there tomorrow let alone in 6 months time so you, you, being prepared for the dynamics of shift are a really critical in, uh you know piece of managing change so you cannot forge a relationship um, with changing government ministers because they won't be driven by a relationship with us. With with too small as a sector, and also they've got shed loads of other stuff that's that's bigger and more important. So you have to write down a convincing argument. There has to be a clear rationale for a change um, program or change strategy, and that needs to be so transparent that it doesn't matter who comes in and who comes out or which uh, home office official you're talking about they know that that is the raison d'etre yeah they know that that is the pitch as far as the fire sector is concerned Um, and actually then the effort that's required to land that so a document like fit for the future and explaining it and re-explaining it and and articulating everything in the terms of it is absolutely fundamental. And I learned that in my 14 years, um, you know, working in in John Lewis. You don't get anything much faster than um, commercial change. You know, it's it's seasonal, basically. Um, In terms of managerial um, churn, look, it is high in operational posts. Personally, I haven't, I would say in my own brigade, it's not, as, it's not as fast as the churn that you're talking about, but in some services it is. Yeah, you know, I've got people, watch managers on um, fire stations that have been there for 10, 15 years. Um, so you know there's a real longevity. But obviously, if there are young people coming up through or new managers in development, they get moved around in order to gain you know experience of the wider sector, and that's really important. But there always needs to be some other constant alongside it. So whether that's the group Absolutely. manager or the watch manager, there needs to be some form of consistency. Because if you shift and spin all of the plates simultaneously, one of them's going to wobble and fall off. So that's about having a good workforce development plan in place. So if you're shifting around the station managers because you've got you know a, a number on development programs, that's okay. That's probably necessary for their development. But you need to create stabilities. In some other way, either with your watch or, or your groups. Um, so, you know, what I would say is, you know, thinking about it in those terms. I mean, there'll always be some sort of churn you can't be in control of because somebody will decide to leave, or retire, or go off sick because they've injured themselves, or, or got an illness, or something else happens in their life. You've got to be able to be ready to deal with that. Um, I, I would say it's not perfect, but you know, hey, we don't live in utopia.
0: No, unfortunately.
1: I was interested to, and that's a really interesting lens that you um, sketched out there about how, uh, you know, another way we can think about viral Sex's relationship with government, um, which is almost don't worry about who's the current minister, just make, make the mission speak for itself. And I guess that's necessarily the NFCC that has to do that in a really muscular way, isn't it?
2: So I think it's NFCC, but I think it's broader because where our dilemma occurs is if because there are multiple stakeholder voices in this. So if if it's tight, if, you know, FRSA, NFCC uh, are all talking, understanding a subject that matters to them collectively as stakeholders in a similar sort of way. Actually, the noise, the white noise, isn't as loud because when you talk to officials and ministers then, they're hearing consistency of message. That for them is convincing. If they hear 42 different
1: voices all jawing on about different stuff, guess what? Yeah, it's just—it's about making making it easier, I guess, isn't it, for them for them to accept it, which is difficult when we've got all of these different fire and rescue services. You know, dozens of fire and rescue services, all with different funding models, management models, BA procedures, tactical ventilation procedures. It makes it difficult, doesn't it, to to speak with one voice when so much about each uh, FRS is different
2: so this is a, this is one of the really interesting dichotomies because I will argue for difference, yeah but a difference in people different in experience, but I think there 's too much inconsistency in standards hmm. and there 's too much inconsistency in court you know there cannot be forty six ways of doing some fairly basic things, and here 's the interesting point actually Becky if I could draw a parallel with john lewis 's department stores for a moment it 's nothing the same but but bear with um, when I was heading up a department, my job was to worry about my staff being competent to perform the role well, uh, the stock and the merchandise being when the right stuff when the customer wanted it, and excellent customer service right I did not vex about the till system that we were using or what the fixtures were, what the hangers were that we were going to put them up on, or what the big seasonal promotion – that was all sorted out in a central head office. Uh, okay, so we didn't, we didn't dilute the really important things, which were around people, customers and staff, with stuff. And there's so much stuff that goes on. I mean, I remember one of the first weeks I was down here in East Sussex – Somebody brought a, um, a triplicate document, put it on my desk, and asked me to sign off on a pair of fire boots for somebody <laughs> as the deputy chief. And I went, "No, nah, I'm not doing that." he's the line manager? Get them to do that. Oh well, they're not authorised to because of the the you know the money. And I'm like, but they're, they're a member of staff. They know if they've got. I don't know this person from Adam. Frankly, I don't know their feet <laughs> I wonder their feet I don't know what they work like I don't know what they're I haven't got privy of their occupation or health background or their quality work. Just give it to them to don't don't darken my desk with this stuff that you are cutting off the legs of the supervisory officers that are competent to do this stuff. so it required a little bit of a shift in thinking, and what was really interesting when I sat with, um, with my managers in East Sussex to start with and went, I'm going to give you accountability. Just understand with it comes responsibility. So, and it'll take you a while to work it out because I'm not going to lay it out in 42 different policies for you, right? We're just going to have a sensible adult discussion about which things we think are your job to do and which things are definitely not my job to do um, because you're more equipped And you're on the shop front and working with these people. And, of course, what it it boiled down to, if we really hit the nub of the issue, is did we trust them? Mm. Did we trust those people to make that decision and sign off on a pair of 30 quid boots? Why not?
0: But that comes back to what you were talking earlier about direct entry and the benefits of direct entry, whereas Mm. the fire service seems to be constantly doing things because they've always done it that way and you need a fresh pair of eyes a fresh attitude a fresh look coming in to the service to do things differently to do things better to do things that are better for individuals employees that as you said empowers people make sure that they feel valued and the whole organization benefits from that doesn't it
2: so i think it's just a different lens Okay, and I wouldn't work, want to work in a whole team of direct entrants because I would lose, you know, the validity of experience. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's a blended approach. Yeah. And um, for me, I guess what I would say, and you, you know, you, in talking to my staff, you you might find different views. I will encourage people to, well, well what, what do you think is the best way of handling it? Okay, that isn't because I haven't got the answer, because I could – I could sit sometimes. I'm really tempted to just go, well, we'll do it like this, because I think I know where we need to be. But that doesn't help people think. That doesn't, you know, start to design in decision making at the appropriate level of the organization. What we need command and control on the Instagram. We don't need it in the day job. You know, we need managers to be free enough, have space enough. Um, to think and you know the really interesting thing is that for a while um, I think they kind of went oh I'm totally confused now I don't know if I'm allowed to or I'm not allowed to well try it where does the allowance uh, if the chief said to you give it a go you know there are some obvious policy things that you don't want to step beyond you know um, but you, you use your intelligence a little bit And if we get it a bit wrong, do you know what? We'll adjust it as we go. Um, And actually, I guess that move away from reliance that everything's got to be done in accordance with a written guidance and policy. Certain things do need guidance and policy, health and safety, you know, the, the really important stuff, PPE, all that sort of stuff. But actually decisions about, you know, who to move forward, how to progress the organisation, whether we're going to use that model for community safety or that model. There are there are people with years of experience and we need to tap into their potential.
1: I'm interested to hear how um, some of the things that you've described there are obviously change and have been change for your organisation that, you, that you've brought about. How do you manage uh, dissent, I guess, uh, some of the... the noise that you you sort of referred to the 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 background noise if you like in terms of the government as well dealing with lots of different opinions how do you how do you square that when you're making changes in an organisation and it goes against the grain?
2: So I think for the most part if you sit down and talk to people and explain the rationale for a decision and have a good conversation and let them see the whole jigsaw puzzle rather than the edge pieces so the vast majority, they might not agree with it, but they'll get it. They'll they'll gut, You'll see them kind of go, right, okay. And they might even say, and this happened to us, trying to sort out the budget and how the heck we're going to pay for pay increases. You know, oh, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. Those are tough decisions. Yeah, they are, actually. But that's fine. We can mutually acknowledge that those things are tough without sort of going, you've got it wrong, you've got it wrong, you've got it wrong, you've got it wrong move away from the blame to the shared understanding thing. You might disagree. And you know what? Dissent is sometimes helpful and, uh, uh, and healthy as well. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't believe in this, you know, I'll write the order down and it'll be issued uh, approach uh, to, to management. Well, you know, it's not leadership, is it? You, you will not get everybody to agree. There will be dissenters and there'll be some people that are Angry uh, about stuff, you know, when you're changing, you know, we're going through a, uh, a duty system change now. And some people are genuinely cross about it. Um, they might understand why. Uh, and we've got the data, and we'll share the data with them and we'll share the risk profiles with them. But it, when it affects them personally, you can't not expect them not to have an opinion about it or feel emotional about it. Um, but there's no point in getting narky with people because they've got an opinion about something or they've got an emotion about it. You just talk them through it, explain the rationale. And then then you come to a point where, you know, you're either going to, they're either going to go, right, okay, I don't like it, um, but I understand it. I just need to crack on. Or they're going to go, I don't like it. Um, I don't agree with it. And this isn't right for me. And then you kind of have to say, well, you know, well, let's explore your options then.
1: Yeah, so it's a lot of communicating, isn't it? Which, again, is a skill that you might need to bring in via direct entry or helping people to develop those skills during their career, which I guess is back to where, you know, what what, what makes someone good at one job doesn't make them necessarily good at another. Exactly. I mean, you know,
2: if, if I'd been brought up or come through, I guess, from the roots, um, would I have the same... Um, same range of tools in my toolkit about listening and I I don't know because I'd have been probably more used to taking and receiving orders I I don't know um but certainly you know I'm not from that camp you know I I know I can't get consensus on anything and if there's something difficult and we end up with me having to take a decision I'm not going to shy away from that Um, but equally I want to hear people's views. It's like like getting onto the cultural issue. There's a plethora of different views about that. And, um, you know, even talking to other chiefs, some people say, oh, well, there's no issues in my brigade um, with culture. And I'm thinking, shine a torch into your dark corners because, you know, when you employ that number of staff, they're a microcosm of humanity. There are going to be apples in the barrel. Do you know what I mean? Um, And, Talking about it with my staff, so I just said, well, we'll have a conversation about it. I'll set up a series of listening lunches and we'll just have a virtual session and get people to, I mean, not get personal stuff off their chest about, you know, if they've been treated badly by an individual or whatever else, but what do you think about our policies? How are we dealing with people who um, need help and support? Are we going the right route there? Are we being tough enough? Do you feel like there are people that are taking the mic in the organization that you would like to see you know, those issues addressed a bit a bit more robustly what do you think about our culture and what are your views and ideas about how to take it forward and you know they cut ca- they come
0: with some really good stuff yeah, I think again, they, that's, that's when you when you though. yeah when, when you encapsulate information like that and it's really important to i think sometimes and whether the hmicfrs do this or not i'm, I'm not sure but when you put surveys around you can you can misinterpret a question and therefore the answer that you're given isn't necessarily correct whereas if you're physically sitting down and having a proper conversation with somebody you can get i know it's very time consuming but you can get a hell of a lot more out of it
2: i'm not a survey fan tristan i I, you know survey somebody if they like you know a new yogurt on the market yeah okay um, survey for facts, but you do not get a depth of understanding on on opinion-based issues um, out of a survey. And in actual fact, you know it's it's proven that those people that choose to respond are either have an extreme view at one end or the other of the spectrum, Absolutely. and you don't hear from the silent majority yeah. um, because they just think, "Oh, mm. I don't." I'm pretty nonplussed about that. Well, they might have a view, but they just don't complete it. Um and you know, the validity. So some surveys come back with a 13% response rate of your workforce. Well, if you're gonna take that as the only viewpoint, you snook it. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I know when I get out and about round stations um and, and over the Christmas I was duty officer over Christmas this year, um, and I did five station visits over uh, Christmas Eve Christmas Day and Boxing Day um, Boxes of biscuits always go down well at this time of year but uh, just you know not not with a purpose other than to go how's it going uh, what does it feel like at the moment what's the issue of the moment you know what's the change going on on this station in this watch um, and you gain valuable insight from listening to that Um and you know some really experienced watch managers who when they say now i like the way we're going with this dawn but i think we need to do a bit more of a bit more of that now okay
1: our, our station manager turned up on christmas day and we were having an extremely boisterous game of monopoly <laughs> So I'm sure you saw some of that over Christmas as well. I wanted to just bring you back to um a tweet that you just put out the other day um which I was interested in. You said I'm inspired by people who see things differently from the crowd and find ways to communicate this effectively without people thinking they're mad. Where where where, where did that come from? How, how do you see that's playing out in our organizations
0: so just before you answer that dawn <laughs> me and becky haven't had that con- this conversation but i picked up on that tweet as well mm-hmm. which i thought oh. was really interesting specifically some of the responses yes um so yeah that we, we hadn't planned that but i'm very interested to to hear what you have to say so there are a couple of things i guess that have prompted that
2: one is about stasis um <clears throat> You know, this whole issue of is if if you're in an echo chamber and you're only listening to the views, you know, within your sector and from and, and you're not opening more broadly than that, then you are going to limit your opportunities for positive change. OK, so if you don't look out beyond far or if this this presumption almost um that we've got it right, the day you think that, you are missing the plot, okay, because there are some great things going on out there in other organisations. And sometimes I think we do get a bit into groupthink. And, you know, when I hear issues around how are we going to achieve efficiencies and discussions, the next survey that's coming out from the Home Office is on productivity, Okay, we've all got to complete a productivity spreadsheet. Uh, so, and you look at the questions and you think, "Goodness me!" You know, if I if I went back twenty years, we were thinking, our thinking in the commercial sector was further ahead about productivity than this survey twenty years later in the public sector, because. This is talking about time and motion sort of stuff. I mean, please, please log what your how many hours a firefighter spends on each activity during the day. Uh, My head went, my hand went to my head, and I had to massage my own temples because actually, you know, KZan and Lean are are far more about are you achieving, are you growing your outcomes, rather than the minuscule measurement of. You know, how much weight of grams of barley are you putting into a pig, frankly? So you do do need measurement. You do need performance measurement. But actually, in terms of productivity, if you can't analyse that in an economic value chain, as opposed to, you know, that minuscule management of, of moment, then I think you've missed the plot. So that, that was one thing that motivated it because that irritates me beyond um, when, you, when you start getting into small mind thinking. The other thing is there are some people that are really trying to do things a bit different in our sector now. And the backlash on some of it is phenomenal. Um, and some of that is about fear of change. Some of it is perhaps because we haven't got the rationale and the explanation out, clearly enough. Some of it is about you know, wanting to maintain status quo because status quo is safe, hey? Nobody likes, really, really likes change that's going to impact on them, even if it's better for the sector. So you've got multiple dimensions at play there. And, you know, there are, it's interesting that there are quite a lot of retired voices coming out of the woodwork and commentating on, know, whether the culture or the economy or whatever else so far is right. Um, And it's interesting because I'm thinking to myself, hmm, and what did you do while you were in office? And and actually, we do need to encourage this difference of thought. So I wanted to just put it out there as a thought and see what the reaction was. And as you quite rightly say, there's been a variety of reaction. Um, Actually, Sometimes the responses you get tell you a lot about the person that's saying it, don't they? Yes. Um, but I'm not being judgmental. I'm just thinking, who are the people who want to be part of, you know, our future and broadening our horizons on our, uh, on our sector and who aren't, you know, blocked by groupthink or stasis and who think that there are things that can be done differently that's not throwing all the baby out with the bathwater. let's not forget it this is about what are the options for you know our sector going forward that actually uh, solidify what we do in the community and there are some really powerful ones you know I I, I truly believe um, having seen some of the excellent work around the UK with cadets and young people um, and the, the outcome from that you know young people who might have had you might be neurodiverse or they might not be as academic as somebody else or they might have fallen into a crowd actually coming out of those cadet programs with a sense of purpose direction understanding teamwork and they might not go into fire they may but they might choose a better pathway than if they hadn't experienced you know that cadet program Um, Measuring the productivity of cadet programmes will be interesting, of course, mm. um, because they are about a broader spectrum of increasing education for young people and creative opportunity, not necessarily just about the fire sector.
1: It's such a delicate balance, isn't it? Um, and there's so much nuance involved in balancing out uh, being an agent of change in a positive way and maintaining tradition where it's appropriate and I think it must be uh, a very difficult balance particularly for people in senior roles like you because it's even a delicate balance for frontline firefighters like me because people have very different attitudes to that on on any given watch on, on on any given station and I think probably the only way to deal with that is for people who who are positive agents of change to be absolutely confident that they have thought about all these options and got it right and do it anyway yeah albeit that I think if you think you've got it right and you do it
2: anyway you kind of missed a bit of a trick in having a conversation and really unpicking why some of those traditions are really important to people because sometimes I mean this badge that this insignia that we've all got on our uniforms yeah you know the history of that don't you I'm not sure I do Right, the eight pointed star, okay, which is the, the background insignia to all of our badges. So that, it, that comes from the Knights of Templar, the uh, Cross of St. John. And each of those points has a tenant, has a fundamental meaning in principle humility, service, you know, integrity. That's, that's a really important tradition. And actually, when we're talking about modern day culture in our service, I've gone right back to the insignia and go, what what was that all about? Why should why do we feel pride in that badge? Is it because it's pretty on our uniforms or is there a deep connection to it, a deep meaning behind it? And so you start to have those conversations and people go, oh, yeah, right. okay." And how long has that been around? And it's in every time rescue service. So actually drawing out some of those issues about why those things are really important, I think helps to work out which are the things you're going to leave behind, which things you can change. It cost me a fortune to get this as an additional embroidered emblem onto our standard wicking t-shirts, but it was important to my staff. And I... I said, why? What, why is that important to you? That sense of belonging, the history behind it, the sense of service, okay, in which case I'll pay eight quid extra a T-shirt and you can wear it. If, if, it's the meaning, if that's the meaning that's important to you, because as long as it's not, oh, I want to look good, you know, out and about, because um, that's not going to carry any favour with me, really. But if it's the true meaning of public service and what sits behind you know that emblem of of the knights of Templar and the cross of saint john
0: fair enough you've reminded me that when i joined which is like 20 21 years ago now um we had that in our induction pack and i wonder how many services still do that because it's a it's a fantastic point that do people who wear that badge know the reason why they're wearing it and what the meaning of it is because if, if every it's not
2: new person that comes into my service brilliant we've brilliant. got it on our website because that is a tradition with meaning with value absolutely
1: I'm going to be. I'm going to be spreading that word now. From this day forth, that's that's my mission. Google it. Google the nice. Yeah.
0: Thing the I'm googling it,
2: and they'll they'll tell you the history of it and what each of the eight points yeah. means. And and I think they're still. You know, the words are a bit
1: old-fashioned, but the principle of meaning is still true today. Yeah, and um, I think we've been talking for for quite some time dawn we've taken up heaps of your time so um i think we should probably wrap it up unless you've got any further questions tristan
0: i've just got one go on um now correct me if i'm wrong but i think the the bearing in mind this is international women's day conversation or the reasons for it uh there's about eight percent of fire service staff are females um if you could do one thing to help improve that statistic what would it be
2: one thing okay it would be to bust some myths um there are lots of sub things underneath that one thing which i won't expand on too much but i think you'll get the gist of what i'm saying there are so many myths out there about our job who can and who can't do it what it involves, what the day in the life of is. I I genuinely think sometimes we've been hoisted by our own petard. You know, if all we do is talk about, you know, squitting the blue stuff on the the wet stuff on the red stuff, actually that's a part of what we do. The biggest part of our job and, and actually in a sense the most valuable to the community um, is is the down is the downstream stuff, you know, stopping those emergencies happening in the first place, because then that family haven't got to go through that grief uh, of, of being in a situation or a scenario which either affects them or their loved ones or their property or their vehicle or whatever else, then you know, that's really important. So bust and miss, show people what the job is really about. Um I am blessed if I'm honest Tristan you know Dan here in East Sussex my senior leadership team of eight we're 50-50 four women four men Um, and I think that does bring a different dimension um, to the service Uh, and actually you know I've I've had a a lot of applications for transfer requests from women to come and work in East Sussex and there's that whole you know You've got to see it to be it thing. Um, So, yeah, bust the myths, drop the ladder, you know, help and support women and actually celebrate everybody in the service that's professional. Because if we do that, it only takes a few good men as well to make sure that we are attracting the widest workforce that we can possibly get hold of.
1: Yeah, I would def- I would certainly second that. Men can be allies um, pretty easily to us, as Tristan is being today, as uh, the man joining on- in on this conversation. Um, and women can be allies to men for the issues that affect men too. I mean, it, it's a it's a two way street, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, Dawn, thank you so much for for being so generous with your time with us today. Uh, I know you're a very a very busy person, so thank you very much for that. Um, from from both of us I'm sure um, and happy International Women's Day Thank you very much and to
2: you Becky and to our colleague and ally Tristan um, have a good week I'm sure there's lots of opportunities out there um, we're doing a uh, bust the myths workshop we're doing a zero tolerance workshop I'm also doing um, on Tuesday a workshop with women who are open water swimmers uh, tackling water safety so lots going on, choose your subject, get involved, do something for International Women's Day, even if it's just join a
0: webinar. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Priority Message, why not subscribe to the podcast and recommend to your colleagues? We hope you will be joining us again soon.